When we're young, we move with freedom and confidence, with a great resilience to injury. But somewhere along the line, we develop poor habits and become more vulnerable to back pain. Back Pain Solutions features evidence-based and practical advice to help you take back control of your health and get back to the activities you love. This is your guide to better back health through movement. So join us as we demystify some of the commonly held beliefs about back pain and build your confidence to a stronger back the smart way. Welcome back to the Back Pain Solutions Podcast, everybody. And in today's episode, Jacob is joined by a special guest. Simon Billings joins Jacob on the show to discuss all things nutrition. Simon graduated from the AECC back in 2001 and is today a doctor of chiropractic at St. James's Chiropractic Clinic in Southampton, down in the south of England. He's lectured nationally and internationally on the subjects of jaw joint disorders, nutrition and trigenics, and he's also published articles on the subjects of migraine, vitamin D deficiency, misshapen head syndrome, and ankylosing spondylitis, to name a few. Simon also teaches through the Academy of Chiropractic Nutrition, an organization which he created with the goal to help chiropractors be more efficient with treating their patients through nutrition and supplementation. He speaks of the metabolic side of health as being overlooked by many chiropractors and no doubt many other healthcare professionals. So sit back and enjoy the show. Simon, welcome on the on the podcast and uh, uh, it's great having you here. So um, you're a chiropractor in uh, Southampton, England, not mm-hmm. far from where I studied and uh, Ben, we studied together. Uh, where did you do your, uh, your chiropractic teaching or your education? Yeah, same place in Bournemouth, same as you. I live in Bournemouth, work in Southampton. Uh, so I've qualified in 2001 and then I've been in private practice ever since. And I do three days as a chiropractor. And then I do uh, two days sort of uh, teaching a little bit, uh, nutrition, but also then doing one-to-one uh, nutritional consulting uh, over Zoom uh, for uh, various sort of, you know, uh, various issues of my own health that sort of led me into the nutritional side of things. Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to ask you about because I, you know, I've been following your newsletters uh, and um, you speak of your own experience with autoimmune problems. And mm-hmm. I, I would have liked, actually, I would really like to know how you got into the whole nutritional uh, approach. Yeah. Can you can you tell us well, more? Well, I was always, I always had, I had more an interest in nutrition in college. I had, I remember having um, uh, you know, some, the Patrick Holford's nutrition book, and I was down at the local uh, health food shop buying things and trying to stop getting colds and things and and so on and taking supplements. Um, so I always had had an interest, but it was you know um, didn't really go much beyond that. And then I you know qualified and during my um, so from my sort of late teens into the college years, sort of nineteen twenty up to the when I qualified twenty three twenty four. I got a lot of aches and pains all over my body and I kind of get, I get tendonitis in my shoulder and then tennis elbow on the other side, then the thumb tendonitis and then my ankle, then my back would hurt. And then it was move around a lot. And, um, and then I also got various things like I've had, so my skin would start peeling in places for no reason. I'd mm-hmm. get acne again and then I'd have insomnia and uh, terrible concentration in lectures and so on. Yeah. And so, these were, I didn't realize at the time, these were all just warning signs that my health was failing slowly. And then by the time then I hit, I think sort of mid, no, probably late-ish 20s, by that point then I had some x-rays taken. I was just really uh, looking at my hips actually to see if they were a normal shape. And it, I could see then on the x-ray that one one of my pelvic joints had, uh, had damage uh, on the x-ray. 
And so, and I have a family history of uh, an arthritic condition called ankylosing spondylitis. Okay. My brother has that. Um, so then you know, I knew what it was. And I knew that he'd taken a very traditional medical uh, route with the uh, medications and this, that, and the other. But, it, you know, it hadn't probably left him in, in, in a great place. And um, so I didn't want that for me. And I'd seen lots of patients, obviously, had come in with uh, ankylosing spondylitis. I knew, I knew what it could do to you, for sure. So I was pretty motivated. Um, so I... Um, uh, by that point, I'd read a little bit more nutrition and I, I dug into the research and read some books and read lots of stuff online. And I found an association between uh, your gut microbiome, that certain bacteria in the gut, one called Klebsiella, which is a particular bacteria. Okay. And on the surface of this bug, it has a, a sequence of um, molecules that look very, very, very similar to the collagen in your joints. Okay. So if your immune system takes aim at the bacteria, it recognizes it's overgrown, it shouldn't be in there in your, in your gut, it will take aim, but your collagen gets its mistaken identity. Uh -huh. So it attacks me okay. in, by mistake. And, and, and that was very well established in the research. It's nothing kind of woo-woo. Right. It was really well established, um, but not part of mainstream uh, treatment per se. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I myself haven't actually heard of it in such detail as you just explained it now. And, and were you, were you, are you specifically speaking of the SI joints or more low back or hip joints? Uh, so, well, it, well, AS will attack the whole spine pretty much, as you know, mm -hmm. and other things. But the, um, so for that, yes, it's, it's particularly SI joints because your the theory is that your gut, where it drains the lymphatics, where your immune system lives, they, they drain down into the pelvis. Okay. And so the first part, the immune system goes, tends to be the sacroiliac joints in your pelvis. And then it will then, you know, eventually it will attack everything on and off. And you frequently see patients with AS. And it's the same with rheumatoid. They have other bugs they're associated with, just different different bacteria that, again, look a bit like you. Um, yeah. But they go through flares. So same with most autoimmunities and things like MS, you'll get a real flare where they're in a lot of pain. And then they will sort of drop again. They'll go through this acquiescent phase and then up again. And there's a sort of theory that maybe this is part of... Um, the life cycle of the bacteria they're kind of building and building and when they die they release lots of poisonous chemicals as well and you can get these big spikes of inflammation um that autoimmune disease patients often go through yeah. so um that was my first bit and i kind of went through a process with that and a lot of testing um i actually spoke to the lead researcher who had done all this researching in the 80s and 90s um uh, about it and then is, is that a british english blog yeah yes got alan ebringer in london so he had a he had a London AS clinic yeah. that was very effective. They had um, the treatment, I should say, this is maybe it, our, uh, our application of this has evolved a great deal because this was in 2000, uh, where are we, seven or eight maybe? Yeah. Um, they just did a zero starch or at least a very low starch diet Okay. with the idea to try and damp, stop feeding the bugs. Yes, 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 makes sense. Now, there are pros and cons to that, but... Um, uh, when we'd have a, a more nuanced approach now, but at the time he had a clinic in London, the AS clinic, or at least okay. in the 80s and 90s, and he had hundreds, thousands of patients in remission uh, from ankylosing spondylitis with no drugs, or at least some of them far less drugs. Yes. Um, but uh, he got shut down. Actually, his funding was oh, cut, I should wow. say. His funding was cut. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, uh, for various reasons, I'm sure, basically, yeah. potentially. But um, so uh, that was, you know, that was one part of it. And there's there's other things that came along after that I, di I didn't know about as well. 
Well, please tell us. So, I, so I, I, I did that for a while and um, was successful, successful to a point. And then I then had uh, my wisdom teeth removed on one side. Yeah. And within, I'd say within two weeks, I had psoriasis. Okay. So that was pretty upsetting in the sense that um, when I had this inflammatory stuff in my back, it was my my little secret like no one else knew about it and i could hide it and whatnot yeah. and i was trying to, i was doing things to improve it but the psoriasis it's 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 a very different thing and that didn't really hurt me but it was very um visible and on my hands as well as on my legs and body and so uh, the the psychological effect was actually far worse in some ways because I, I felt very ashamed about that and kind of embarrassed of my appearance so mm. at that point i went back to the research and i actually saw um i saw a dermatologist and she said well it's psoriasis and you take um steroid cream if that doesn't work you do cold tar if that doesn't work you know you've got this like a hierarchy of how hardcore the drugs get yeah. to bring it down and um i just left really upset um i just knew there must be more to it than that yes. I couldn't like because i knew about the the other stuff and i thought maybe this uh, i hadn't fully gotten hold of what was going on yeah. and i hadn't so then I, I dug back into the research and happened to have some books um around certain areas from the AS stuff. And I dug into that, found some research, and I found a group of researchers in, uh, it was in Tennessee in America, yeah. and they had a 50%, more than 50%, I think, complete remission from psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis as well. Okay. And they had a protocol, they would, a protocol of testing for infections, again, bacterial infections, often streptococcus, yeah. and then also yeast infections. And they had a very, a, quite a basic approach of just very hardcore antibiotics and uh, antifungal medicine, but over 50% remission of, um, you know, a disease that if you, if you look it up online or see a doctor, they'll, that's, you know, they'll say, well, you, you can't get rid of it. That's what it it's is. In, it's incurable. Exactly. Like incurable. A lot and of these, so that's yeah. where I, I feel kind of, again, I feel, I felt really annoyed when I left. And even now I still get upset about it because I think there is, then again, this isn't woo woo. They've yeah. known about infections and psoriasis for, I think, almost 100 years. They had people have sore throats a lot. They'll often get psoriasis afterwards. And they would take people's tonsils out and their psoriasis would go away. Yeah. And so here's a group of researchers since the 80s and 90s publishing data saying, if you do this, you can get remission. And yet it was not, certainly not in the UK at least. Yeah. Um, it was nowhere near any of the, you know, and I paid privately to see this, this, uh, this consultant and, and somebody in London as well. So that I feel, I feel, <laughs> I feel somewhat frustrated and aggrieved for patients that, um, you know, we live in a, um, uh, certainly, you know, evidence-based medicine is meant to be a patient-centered experience. Yes, yes, yes. And you take the very best evidence yeah. and you take clinical experience and the patient's wishes and wants. Yeah. And I feel that it's not really done half the time. It's, it's a nice sales pitch, but it doesn't really deliver. I very interesting what you're saying and i think you've got a very good reason there at least motivation to do what you do because of your own experience mm -hmm. i have something mm -hmm. similar with my own low back uh, a very heavy hernia i had uh, 10 years ago in the beginning of my career and uh you know that's pushed me along the path of really exploring how to get people better when they've had a low back hernia because i mm -hmm. i see so many people who you know they're they're the next step is getting a, an operation mm. um, or they've had it for a year and a half or two years or longer, and it just doesn't go away. Mm. And, you know, the, the, not only the frustration, but the hopelessness, what that you see sometimes in patients when they 
uh, you know, they, they, they're past the point of frustration. There's just no more hope. It's, you know, they, they're mm. there and they tell you, look, I've been everywhere. And if you, you're my last hope, basically. I mean, I'm sure you've heard mm-hmm. that a few times. And yeah. uh, it's, it's very frustrating for us and for me when you see that. And, and, and quite often you'd get something better in a few weeks. But it's been a, mm. been a chronic problem for a couple of years or more. Mm. And they've just not had the right diagnosis. They've not had the right mm. guidance. Um, and I could just think of, of so many of those examples. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a nice story. Nice hearing about your own experience. Mm. I think one other thing is all of that, you know, I know that not every doctor or every chiropractor or osteopath or whatever is an expert in every area. Um, you can't be all things to all people, right? But some, it also, as a professional, you need to be able to recognize, well, this thing could be caused by this, this, and this. And I do all with these bits. I'm not really an expert on this. So when I spot it, I'll give you all the options of treatment. And if you want my bit, that's great. But if you want these bits, then you, you go and see someone else and I can give you a recommendation. Yes. They're not just doing your bit and not even mentioning the, the other stuff I think is unethical. Which is what they get um, in the mainstream media. I, I would say, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's exactly that. You know, I'm, I'm a very functional chiropractor, which means that I, when I get somebody with, who's had a, a hard hit against the head and they need to see a neuro, neurological chiropractor, you know, I, I, I have my contacts. I send them on and I don't. I, I already at the, at the intake, at the first appointment, I, I explain to them, well, it's great that you're here. But I'd really, you know, and there's no charge for today, but I, I'd really like you to go there. Hmm. Just because hmm. I know that they've got a much better chance of it uh, getting better. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, that's the reason why we really wanted to have you on the show because of, you know, your approach. And, you know, I, I really like your website where you you explain how some patients just won't get better with traditional chiropractic. And um, my thing has always been nutrition. And mm-hmm. I, I'm still waiting for the day where I can really go into uh, further study and, and really uh, maybe get to a level where, where you are at this present moment. I don't know if I'll ever reach that point because uh, I'm, I'm also very caught up in other things. I think you know how it works. You only have that much time. But it's, it's great to see that there's this development of or at least awareness of nutrition and well, maybe on sort of orthomolecular uh, nutrition supplement base mm. on top of the traditional chiropractic that we do, because it is it's mm. an incredible powerful, powerful. And uh, yes. So I, yeah. and I think also remember that the, um, we are as we are iller as people in the West in the West now that we've ever been um, because of our lifestyle. We know we have a, we have our our genetics and our evolutionary ancestry as, as hunter gatherers, yeah. and we have a very modern lifestyle, and and they don't fit very well. And that's you know from a point of view how much we move, like people just do a lot of sitting, right? I mean, yes. we anyway, it's just constant sitting. That that doesn't gel with who we are, who we evolved as, and the diet that we eat now is very different to anything we evolved uh, to eat, and uh, the levels of pollution that we have. Uh, in uh, in society, uh, the stress levels we have, all these things are, are just bad. And we live a long time because we have some good medicines to keep us going. But the last sort of 10 years of life often is pretty poor quality. Yeah. And so 
uh, I think like, you know, from our point of view, when we were training, uh, you, you heard of these amazing stories about sort of holding one, like one treatment and you cure this patient of whatever it was, right? Yeah. That doesn't really happen anymore. Not, not like it did, I don't think. And I think part of the reason is people are very, they have very low levels of nutrients in their diet but high levels of toxins coming in. Yeah. And so they're very inflamed, generally speaking, uh, and very stressed. And this is a, you know, a, a good platform for people to get injured and then stay injured, like you say, and not respond in the way that we know they could do uh, with the right sort of in, internal environment for themselves. Yes. Very deficient at the same time, to a degree, toxic. And uh, yes. if you look at the videos of chiropractors, a uh, hundred years ago, I mean, I've, I'm sure you've watched those videos maybe as a student and you see how they did the, the upper cervical adjustments and, and, and they just looked, it looked like somebody's getting killed because <laughs> I had this discussion with, uh, with another chiropractor, you know, I, like you say, people could just have a lot more back then. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm South African. I grew up in South African. I know from a different lifestyle. Uh, people are just a lot stronger than uh, where you would be maybe in Europe or when I moved to England. I, mm. I could see that just being so much inside, different weather, but also a different mm. different culture where there's uh, you don't have to do as much as many physical things like you would in Africa, for example. Mm. It's 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 a little bit advanced in that way, but at the same time, it has its cost. And so people, mm. people become weak and, you know, and I think if you would treat patients the same way as they did, chiropractors did a hundred years ago, you would have a, you would have a lot of problems, <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of unwanted uh, problems. So, um, but I think, you know, we have to say that as chiropractors, we, we really take care of the way we work, especially when it comes to manipulation. And, yeah. and that's obviously varied for the, the intensity is varied to the, the person we have. We're going to treat a very um, uh, a strong young male, very different to an, an elderly, frail lady. Mm. But um, I, I'm very curious about your view on vitamin D and how you work with it, what you, what you do with it, um, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, no, we, that's probably the most common thing we... we we give out and um again we, we we just look look through the lens of evolution and you made a good point about you know if you live in south africa then you know from um from a genetic point of view you're gonna your skin tone your melanin content is adapted to the environment and that amount of sunshine the problem is that if you are if you are ancestry from somewhere in africa and you move north then there's a mismatch between your, you know, your evolutionary ancestry and where you live, your latitude that you live now. So vitamin, so those people we know in England, people of a, a black or Asian background are universally deficient, certainly in the winter and very commonly low, even in the summer. And even amongst people that are Caucasian, we know that also they're in the middle of winter, about 90% of the population are either deficient or insufficient. Um, and that's because of a combination in the summer when we should be getting sunshine, we spend a lot of time indoors and then we are outdoors. Um, if we get out and you have to be out between about 11 and three or four o'clock in the afternoon for the sun to be strong enough to make vitamin D. So you can't make any vitamin D in England, at least 
from about uh, September, October to around about April, you, you make none on your own at all, no matter how much sun, because the sun is too weak. So a good rule of thumb for people listening is that if your shadow is shorter than you are, yeah. then you will make vitamin D. If it's longer than you are, the sun is too weak to make any. So shorter than you are, good explanation. then you're okay. That's yeah, and that's generally between about 11 and 3-ish, 4-ish uh, in the UK, between about April and uh, September-ish. But you can't wear lotion if you yeah. want to make vitamin D because the whole point of the lotion is to block the UVB and it's the UVB that will generate vitamin D. So we mustn't get burnt either. This is very important because that's uh, getting burnt is one of the best ways you can give yourself a melanoma later on in life. So the key thing would be to you get so it depends on your skin tone so i'm fairly fair sort of freddy freckly i don't need a lot of uh, sun time so i'm if i used to spend more than sort of half an hour 45 minutes i will burn so you want to aim for about a quarter to a third no more than a half of the time that you would take to get pink <laughs> so you're not going to get pink. you don't want that you want to spend maybe a third of that and then so if i guess i get burned in half an hour for example I would aim to get 10 minutes yeah. in strong sun with no lotion, um, with a good amount of skin out. You need at least, the very least, your arms and legs out, and ideally torso if you can get it. Um, and then once you've been to 10, 15 minutes or whatever it is, then you lotion up or you cover up or you sit in the shade. What you don't want to do, what I used to do when I was a teenager on holiday was baste myself in ombre solaire and then lie out in the Spanish sun for you know six hours a day working my way down the suntan lotion line that's a bad idea because you're just getting a whole load of uv and you've got lotion on but you're still going to get exposed that's a, that's a bad thing to do so we need to get the sun when we can um but safely and then we need to recognize that in the winter you will become deficient in the uk certainly yeah. and uh, you're in holland aren't you i think yes exactly i mean it's the same uh level so i think it's exactly the same yeah, so it'll be the same yeah and and like you say i mean People are also in the summer, they're, they're quite often they're just inside or they're in the shade. Yes. So they're hiding from the sun. Yeah. But yeah. Um, our lives have just shifted from like what I've read and, and there's some really interesting, interesting stuff on it, you know, from being hunter gatherers to being nomadic. Mm. You've been with the animals until maybe mm. just before the Industrial Revolution. You've mm. been outside taking care of the animals. So even in the winter or before the summer, after the summer, you were outside. Whereas, mm. whereas now there's just nothing of that anymore. And, mm. uh, and, and uh, it's been, become so convenient just to be inside. You have to really make the effort to get outside. And so yes. I think that's why there's this almost epidemic of, uh, don't want to use the word pandemic, <laughs> epidemic of, of vitamin D deficiency just everywhere. And then, yeah. then we, we, we look at, Okay, so, you know, in, in the Netherlands, we work on the scale of 50 to 200 millimolar per liter mm. vitamin D, according to your GP. Yeah. Uh, so at 50, you'll be, you'll be okay, you know. Yeah, uh, adequate. Adequate, yeah, according to the, the GP. So, but I, I will get people and when I get them to supplement, we usually start first with a test. We either do a, a, a test we get through the post, you know, two drops of blood, send it away. Yeah. Or they go to the GP. Um, and then we start supplementing with a boost for a month. And then after a month, we test again. As, yeah. as, as a lot of people are, you know, they are, some will take it up 
very well and others will have uh, a much slower uptake. And uh, then the reaction quite often is, oh, I've got a lot more energy or, mm. or I sleep a lot better yes. or, I feel, or I feel a lot better. Yes, definitely. And so then, you know, what I tend to do is try to get them up to 115, 125, even yeah. 150, you know. Yeah, it's perfect. But so, yeah, what, what is your view on that? How, in a nutshell, what's your... Yeah, I think it's spot on. Yeah, it's great. So, again, we have some research from... So, your skin will make vitamin D. And just to give... This is... Um, with, with the supplements in Holland, what uh, do you know? Are they working in international units or micrograms so when they buy? There's, there's a slow shift to micrograms from international yeah. units. Okay, so same here. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll do both. But um, so uh, if in half an hour of strong sun, your skin can make ten to twenty thousand units of vitamin D. So that's about I think two hundred and fifty to five hundred micrograms in half an hour. So it's a lot of a lot of vitamin D. So in the UK. The recommended daily allowance is 200 units. So you can make 10, 20,000, but the, they think you 200 is enough. And the most common tablets will have 400. Yes. So, and the NHS gives 400. So this is not really a physiologically meaningful dose. Well, if you're deficient, well put. that won't get you out of deficiency. But obviously, if you're not testing, you won't know that. Yeah. And therein lies the problem. So um, when we're dosing, we want to consider the amount we can make it our own ourselves. And the other thing we'll recommend, remember, is that when your skin has made enough, your body, your, your body will turn the production off. So you can't become toxic through sun exposure. Yes. Your body will just turn the production down. It's all good. So then the question would be, how, how do we know where's optimal? We don't want to be just, you know, not deficient or adequate at 51. Um, so we would take a lot of people that work in the sun in a, in, a, in a country where it's hot all year round and they are outdoors all year round. So, for example, lifeguards, say in Israel or uh, people that were in Costa Rica in uh, who are farmers and so on. Lots of these people. And then you look at their uh, or, or Maasai warriors, for example, um, you look at their blood levels and they're usually in the hundreds. Maybe the low hundreds, maybe the high hundreds, depending on the person. So that means that endogenously, what we can make, and when your body has had enough, you know, is optimal level, we would say somewhere in the hundreds. And then we'd also look at the um, things like associations between cancer levels and MS and infections and all stuff, and then look at people's blood levels and just see what happens. And we're doing that with COVID a lot at the moment. We're noticing that there's a trend that the high of vitamin D is generally the worse the severity of you know covid and there's a reduction in cancers and ms and they that's effect really seems to kick in in the hundreds okay so we want to mimic that i think what you're doing is spot on and so in the hundreds you mean when you talk about these people in in south america or maybe the maasai warriors mm -hmm. uh hundreds more than 200 are we going to three four five hundreds or uh, no, no. So they're, they're staying in the hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Oh. They're usually sort of low hundreds to mid hundreds for the most part. Okay. No. So they never go above. You won't get natural production above 200. That wouldn't generally happen. They do do that in some research for things like MS. There's some very, they do very aggressive dosing, like 50,000 units a day, okay. way above what you could make. Yeah. And they have some good effect. And there are some genetics involved a little bit. The, you know, vitamin D, vitamin D is very unusual in that every single cell in the whole body. Um, has a receptor to receive vitamin D. I think yeah. the only other molecule that does that is thyroid. It's very unusual in that respect. Um, so it's a very powerful thing. And I think what you said there about the energy, that's really common. And the reason people perform more energy, the reason they sleep better, and the reason it improves their mood, is very common as well, is because it brings inflammation down. 
And if you have inflammation up, you're tired, you hurt, yeah. and you're depressed. So like a triad, pain, brain, fatigue, come up again and again. And, you know, in our, in our practice, people have back pain and they're tired and they're depressed. It's very easy to think that that's, they put them in the biopsychosocial model. Yeah. You say, ah, it's, you're depressed because you're tired, you're in pain, you're in pain because you're depressed and blah, blah, blah. But actually there's a root cause often. And if you can remove that root, they will perk right up. And then all of a sudden our chiropractic work works like it ought to. Great, great. Well explained. Yes. And um, yeah, with the vitamin D, like you said, every cell in the body has a vitamin D receptor. And I saw some research on, uh, was with rats looking at the, uh, the, the IVDs, intervertebral discs, mm. that it is actually influenced, influenced by your vitamin D level. True. And so those are just preliminary, um, you know, hopefully they can do something later with people where they look at what that does for your, uh, for your discs. Yeah. Um, but that already says a lot that every cell has a vitamin D receptor. And I believe the eyes and ovaries have multiple thousands. Wow. And so um, with fertility, if you, if you're very low in vitamin D with females, you know, that's a big factor. Mm. I think again, like we said, it's evolution. If you're against your natural lifestyle that you evolve with, like, you know, the, the, the theory is, this is a theory, but it would make sense. If um, when we migrated from Africa and we went north over millions of years, um, there's natural selection that those with, as you go north and you get less sun, there is a natural selection pressure that if your skin is darker and you've gone north, that the, the, the mother who's vitamin D deficient, um, the, when, you're, so when you're a child, sorry, and you're deficient, you, you, you get low-level rickets and your pelvis is often not an ideal shape. So when you then deliver a baby, they'll often die in birth and the baby will die. Okay. So as you go further north, there's an advantage of having a slightly lighter skin tone. And over a period of time, that's why if you're originally from North Finland or Norway or something, you are going to be very, very fair, genetically speaking. And there must be a reason for that. And the theory would be that selective evolutionary pressure, lightening the skin tone, it, because without it, you, you cannot survive. And that's why, again, there's a history of um, things like fermented cod liver oil. Yeah. Tribal people have noticed that certain foods keep them healthy and vital in the longer term. So eating organs, for example, is generally yeah. widely practiced by all tribes people. Uh, so if there's an animal available, they eat it. Yeah. And they eat the organs first. They just do. So uh, yes, they knew that they don't have it, but it is what it is. So um, I know that's where one thing with being a vegan, I've no problem with it as long as you're healthy. I'm good with it. Um, but again, I just from an evolutionary point of view, where animals are available, they are eaten and they are prized for their nutritional content. Always, absolutely. And I, I think you know, I just want to add to what you're saying there because I'm glad you mentioned that, and that's also my approach when it comes to nutrition. And uh, you know, um, I my main focus is working on basic nutrition. And so, mm. uh, you know, I mean, I think you go a little bit further there in the detail and, and that's great. I focus just on making sure people are getting the, the, the nutrients in. So mm. my main focus is just to reduce inflammation and increase nutrient intake. And from a dietary perspective, the approach that I follow is mainly increase vegetables a lot, mm -hmm. increase uh, meat, fish, and and, uh, and 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 chicken. So to make sure that they get the the good fats, but also the protein that they need. Because mm. what you see with a lot of people is, especially when it comes to um, 
uh, chronic fatigue or uh, just not having energy is that they really have a lack of basic nutrition. And uh, if you if you focus on that, you make that better, you, you already see that people just get uh, sometimes a lot better. Yeah. And, and I think it's surprising to some people, isn't it? The just the basic stuff, you have to have good stuff and you need to have less bad stuff. And if you do that, your body generally works better. It works better. Everything works better. And uh, th that started for myself as well also many years ago. And I just, I just can't veer off. Whatever I do, I just keep coming back as my main thing is my nutrition. And when that works well, I can train, I, can, I feel good, I can work, and it just mm. all streamlines. Yeah. I think one tricky bit I find with patients is that uh, they, and I tell them this, I have to say to them, you know, the challenge is, you don't know what normal is yes because you've ticked every you you come in with back pain for example but we've also ticked headaches and migraine and ibs and depression and anxiety and eczema and asthma so i know and i've seen your diet and there's no nutrients in it it's just junk food and sugar and refined flour yeah. <laughs> and some other stuff um with or without animals you know that that's irrelevant it vegan junk food is still junk food right uh, meaty junk food is junk. It's just junk food is processed, yeah. and so they don't know what not. They don't know that they're not meant to have all these things. That they're not all connected with a loss of good nutrients, as you rightly say, and too much inflammation. And until they got on the other side, they don't know what the hell is going on. And that's where it's a leap of faith for them to come with you to take, you know, to change their diet to maybe take some supplements to maybe remove some gluten and dairy from their diet and see if they're having a reaction. Then on the other side, they're like, "Wow, I didn't know it wasn't normal to have." insert symptoms they didn't even tell you about and then like you said they feel better they move better they, they, they get that positive i think breaking the vicious cycle i find people who have pain pain brain and fatigue if you can break that because if they're tired and they hurt uh, they don't want to move and so they they lay around they get deconditioned they get bigger they comfort eat yeah tired so they eat more sugary food and they just spiral down into just a terrible uh, condition and if we can break that some point and get them out and positive and, you know, they, they become educated and take it on themselves. And all of a sudden, you know, it's they're right with the teamwork then and not just you dragging them, you know, yes. along. Yes, yes, yes. I think that that's where the, the art lies is to explain things where you get them on board. And I mean, mm. you know, you know, that process, I think, you know, quite well, you, you just see when somebody steps onto the boat. And, uh, mm. and then we can we can work and we can do it. And that also means that they're fully behind what we're attempting here. Just makes it a lot mm. more powerful, especially for their, their recovery and healing process. Yeah, I, um, definitely. I, uh, yeah, I, I think a while ago I read one of your newsletters and uh, um, you spoke about Paul Saladino. And you, mm -hmm. you read his book. I mean, I haven't read his book. It's still on my list. But I, I've listened to him quite a lot and I, I find it all very interesting the carnivore diet and yeah. do you have a specific opinion on what you read especially if you think of the uh, the carnivore diet and its effectiveness um and it's pretty extreme i think my general's point of view is that the iller the patient is the more extreme the dietary change will need to be mm. And that might be the carnivore diet, which for those people that don't know, it's just eating, not just, it's mainly animal-based products. So you'd eat offal and you eat meat. You might eat some eggs. There'd be a lot of fat. Often it's ketogenic. 
he also does you know some berries maybe some honey as well there's a very very um in essence it's really an extreme elimination diet with a lot of nutrients yeah. that's really what it is and exactly what you said high nutrient that's the, the cornerstone of the diet bit the course it teaches high nutrient density with with a high tolerance to the food they come in all food has baggage basically and meat is useful in the sense that um ruminants are grass grass eating animals yeah eat grass they then chemically transform the nutrients and the vitamins in themselves so the plant form of uh, vitamin b6 is inactive it doesn't do anything and in fact in plants it's bound to another molecule so they eat it they then take that molecule off and they get be and then they convert it into the active form that does something so when you eat an animal you're basically eating concentrated nutrients they've done all the chemical conversions they put it in their tissues and you then eat, and you get the benefit of the activated form in a very easy to get and it's high nutrient density that's the benefit of eating animals really and if you tolerate um you know that then you're fine that's the difficulty in eating if you just plants for some people genetically there's some issues here as well is that the nutrients there's less nutrients relatively and they're in different forms and often they're inactive so this is a subtle nuance there so i don't really recommend a named diet per se i think because i think very much like you i want my patient's diet to be sustainable there's enough fat yes. diets out there that you can jump on <laughs> the question is how are we going to maintain it? So it's kind of what I generally recommend as sort of a modified sort of Mediterranean paleo style. So yep. we emphasize, I would like them to eat organ meat if they will. I appreciate it. I yes. want to do that. I guess. Yes, yes. Same uh, here. From a nutrient point of view, there is nothing on the planet that comes even close to liver or kidney or, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable. Yep. And then they'll have, you know, and I try and get them to eat quality of meat, not just quantity. So uh, maybe some of the paleo community fall into the trap of e eating meat, you know, like every day, two, three times a day or something, because, you know, hunter gatherer ate meat, so that's fine, but he wouldn't have eaten it every day. Yeah. And we want to make sure, I'd rather they ate red meat two, three times a week, or maybe more, a bit less, but did grass-fed organic meat. That's really good quality. Yeah, uh, Mixed up with eggs and some white fish and a little bit of oily fish, lots of vegetables in a Mediterranean style um some vegetarian days did a little bit of fasting i'm a big fan of intermittent fasting great i do um 16 8 fasting monday to friday um i find that works really well for me as a lifestyle thing as well in the morning so for si those are 16 8 is you have 24 hours in a day you have an eight hour feeding window so for me i i eat my first meal around 12 one o'clock okay. i have all my my food and calories in that eight ish hour window i'm not militant about it let's say i finish at say eight in the evening I go to bed without having eaten again. I get up and I just don't eat breakfast. And that makes my morning routine easier, my life less stressful. Yeah. And actually it keeps me lean and I feel really good in the mornings. And then I break my fast about 12. I find that's a great way for people to maintain health. And also particularly because the breakfast is the one they typically have a lot of carbohydrate and sugar and yes. a processed variety. Yes. So it removes the trickiest meal of the day to eat sort of, you know, fat and protein yeah. really. Yes. Oh, great. Um, yeah, what I, my wife had, uh, she still has a um, uh, gastritis, so she had a, a stomach ulcer, very bad when I got to know her. And uh, the only thing that seems to work for her, it's it's more than 90% better now. She almost has no more mm. issues with it, but she has to eat specific times and she mm -hmm. has to eat very nutrient dense. So she eats meat three times a day, for example. 
So she'll mm-hmm. have uh, uh, different types of meat three times a day with purely vegetable and, and mm-hmm. a great deal of fat. And mm-hmm. then the gastritis is really kept aside. She has almost no uh, no issues from it anymore. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, like in many situations where you have uh, something like gastritis, it's often it's multifactorial. So you have, uh, like in her case, you know, if she has stress or she has a deadline, she has to work hard, she become more sensitive to it. Mm. And um, she's she's doing a PhD at the moment. She's almost finished. But so there's there's some pressure. And so, mm. but through her diet, she's managed to really you know, keep, keep, really keep it at bay, having no problems with it at all. Uh, the only, the only, and I, we don't see it as a problem, but the only thing that you have to then pay attention to is planning, making, making sure that, uh, that you are, we have to go somewhere, we were prepared for that or, you know, uh, and she, fasting is not an option for her. Whereas for Mm. me, similar to what you're doing, sometimes I'll skip breakfast. I'll Mm. have a lunch and I'll have a dinner. Well, sometimes I'll have breakfast and I'll, if I work a little bit longer uh, until mid-afternoon, then I'll only have dinner. I'll skip lunch. Yeah. And I, and I get my intermittent. Uh, every now and then I'll skip a whole day. Yeah. Nice. Yes. And uh, and I'll just drink some salt water to make sure I get some, um, mm. some, uh, some salt in my body. I think the important point you've brought up there is that you, because you are a healthy, healthy guy, you have metabolic flexibility exactly so you can do that without it's not a big deal so if you have to eat breakfast and then a snack at 10 and then lunch and then a snack at four or you fall apart the seams you have a problem with your blood sugar balance and i definitely used to have that big time Mm -hmm. and you're on this roller coaster up and down up and down up and down that's not what we want and like we just you mentioned about paul saladino and the uh, the carnivore diet and this diet and that diet I think that's a really important point in terms of, you know, you want, for me anyway, for, for most people, this is, and so the, the earlier they are, the more extreme the diet has to become. But for most people, there's a midpoint where you want your diet to support your lifestyle, not the diet to become your lifestyle. Mm. If you have to make a diet to become your lifestyle to get better, then that's fine, as your wife slightly has there. Yeah. But for the most part, you want it to be, a way to get energy to go off and do the stuff you want to do and yes. see your friends and have where to work. Not, I can only eat, I don't know, raw vegetables or something, or I only eat liver, you know, raw. Then that becomes a social problem. And, you know, when you travel, yes. it just becomes stressful and people become a little bit, you know, too focused, mate. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. And and I have to, you know, I'm quite passionate about what I eat and about uh, what's good for you and what's not good for you. And, and that's the thing. Sometimes you have to be a little bit careful. I have to judge who I'm dealing with very well, you know, because a lot of people come from a point where there's so much they can improve. But if, if you only get them to take a couple of steps forward, first of all, you want them to notice that it actually makes a difference. And then they give you the room to improve a little bit more. But maybe that's enough and that's what they're willing to do. And that's great. Yeah, um, yeah great. Now, well said there about the metabolic, metabolic being metabolically flexible. Because that's, and I hope uh, people listening to this understood that, because that's, I think, probably one of the biggest problems we struggle with today is the idea that, you know, oh, yeah, well, I'm having a snack halfway through the morning. I'm having a snack halfway through the afternoon. And that's that's just the, 
what you know that's maybe what the uh, we call it the footing centrum uh, that's what the government advise you mm. you know have have fruit twice a day and, and people think it's normal that I'm feeling like I have to have a snack halfway through the morning and halfway through the afternoon but in actual fact we should be able to have breakfast skip a lunch have dinner mm. and not really feel hungry mm. and then we have that we're metabolically flexible where we can go the whole day without uh, struggling or feeling like I can eat my arm off uh, mm. because I have to and and just function normal yeah that's great so i, I have a question to ask about holland there because i had a, a patient who was a, a pilot from holland and he had i think he used to have bread or toast and then he put sprinkles on it in the morning and this is a dutch thing i'm led to is this is this a thing in holland what's going on this is a this is a big deal um over here i because i'm south african i live here for 10 years now uh but can still not call myself Dutch, if you know what I mean. So this is an incredibly Dutch thing to do. It's called hagelslag. And uh, it's it's these sprinkles, usually different colors, but uh, depending if it's chocolate or, or white or strawberry, don't think you can really taste the difference. But they, they will take bread, because in the Netherlands they... Um, maybe you didn't know this, but we eat more grain because of bread in the Netherlands than any other European country. I didn't know that. Yes, that's that's very interesting. And it's because there's a lot of a lot of people will have bread for breakfast and lunch. Mm. Standard. So a lot of bread for breakfast, a lot of bread for lunch. And then they'll put either butter or margarine and they'll sprinkle this hagelslag, these um it's basically just sugar over the bread mm -hmm. and that's what they have for breakfast and uh i've never had it myself i've seen people eat it but yes yeah, so the the very first thing i tried to do when i asked them about their diet is to get them off that <laughs> let's do that only on the weekend or you know that's not really that's not really food <laughs> but i guess the bread that you have there it probably is a more traditional bread than we would have in england we have very soft spongy kind of it's not really bread bread it's kind of a highly highly processed is, is it different over there yes and no i think generally it's the same as in england as i i, I you know I, I studied in england i lived there i know what you're talking about but if you really go out of your way um you will find good bread but mm. i think the mainstream uh bread that's being eaten is exactly that soft bread that just never gets old and uh doesn't get moldy and yeah, so I don't think it's best. And I, I try to explain to people, you know, having a swollen belly after a meal every time you eat is not a good thing. So the, one of the first steps is, is to get them off the get them off that amount of grain. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I just I guess I'm surprised they're not fatter in, in Holland. It's amazing. It's all the, is it the, the genetics? Because you're very tall. I, I felt positively average height when I came to Holland uh, for a visit once. I, that could be a reason, the fact that people are it's the tallest nation on the planet. So, um, And yes, I think they move a lot. I mean, a lot of them, you know, they go to places by bicycle, whereas in South Africa, you'd, yeah. if, it, if you have to go around the block, you'll take the car. And yeah. uh, and here a lot of people, you know, it, it could be a, a businessman or I don't know anybody with status who 
generally go with a car, they all like to take their bicycle or at least they have one. That's it. Nice. That, that, it's a very good thing. And I know what you mean. In England, people are um, a little bit more set. They're a little bit bigger in general. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think if nothing else, that has genuinely, uh, with COVID thing, oh, yeah. that's probably more recognized now that this is a, this is a big deal. The, the, the obesity and the risk of you know ending up in, in ICU and dying if you're a properly obese, it's way, way higher. Um, and unfortunately, over since uh, we had lockdown sort of April, March last year, the average person I think has put on a stone and a half, maybe one to two stones is not uncommon now. Oh, what, what, put on one to two stones, kilo, how many kilograms is that? Oh, uh, what is that? Maybe two or three kilograms? I'm not 100% sure. It's enough, like you would notice. Okay. And that's a lack of of lack of movement and a lot of alcohol wait how many stone are you i Roughly. am about oh, uh, 11 and a half 12 about 75 kilograms i think that 75 is. kilograms 11 okay so that's roughly um it's like five or six kilograms per stone no more seven uh, yeah maybe uh, it's going to be about five and a half to six kilograms per stone yeah <laughs> you would notice your clothes that, tight. that's that's a lot of kilograms and yeah. yes absolutely you know i've we've seen it here it's, people are talking about it people gained a lot of weight just because of not moving enough because of the COVID yeah. situation and, yeah. and what goes through my mind is you know if you think of the tipping point the pro-inflammatory cytokines and the anti-inflammatory cytokines you know and you think of the cytokine storm Where's the tipping? Mm. Where's the tipping point for people who's now gained enough weight, so they become vulnerable mm. to the COVID virus, as that's yep. as obesity is the biggest reason or the biggest uh, underlying factor. No doubt, no and, doubt at all. And the same with with diabetes; they're often obese, obviously, but diabetes is a very, very pro-inflammatory state. Um, same thing. And one of the uh, tragedies is at the, near the beginning of the the lockdown in the UK. There's a cardiologist called Asim Maltora, who is brilliant. And he said, you know, you can reverse diabetes in three months. If you do a hardcore, you're no longer diabetic. We have an opportunity here. This is before anything about vaccines or anything. It was in April, I think it was. Yeah. Look, by the end of the summer, we could have the nation in a really good place if we go for it. That will bring down the number of people dying and in ICU massively. Yeah. Um, didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> <but there> we- <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, so what was the outcome of that? Uh... Yeah, not so much. We, we, we got fatter. Does the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw something about Boris Johnson saying something about move more, or, you know, and uh, whether you like him or not, I mean, nowhere else did a leader leader speak of moving more or taking better care of your health. And that's that's what I... Well, that's he was very poorly in, in intensive care. Oh. So, and he on a lot of weight and he was the first to say i got a bit fat and he used to cycle everywhere yeah when he was a mayor of london and this he would do lots of cycling and he just got bigger and bigger okay so i think um he recognized his own role in that but obviously from a a media point of view a politician saying he's not saying this but the media would interpret him saying you don't need to lose weight that's kind of and fat shaming and saying it's your fault that you've got COVID. He's not saying that, obviously. <laughs> but the media are going to trust him. I mean, if you're very careful in what you say, yeah. uh, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Yes, because I, 
I'm just so surprised that there was nothing mentioned about vitamin D, you know, increase vitamin D, do things to to make yourself more resilient to this virus. Mm. And and nowhere I asked somebody uh that I know who's high up in the organization that dealt with how to to take on this situation. And mm. um I asked him about vitamin D and he just told me straight. He said no, there's no way that the government would give any advice in uh, on taking more vitamin D or increase your vitamin D level levels because it's a fat soluble vitamin and it, it can build up and it beca can become mm -hmm. toxic. Yeah. And and I was thinking to myself, well, uh, you know, too right. But at the same time, I think something I I, I don't know the numbers, but sixty or seventy percent of the country is deficient in vitamin D. So yeah. So at the same time. You know, if you have a national approach to uh, getting everybody's vitamin D level up to, well, get it higher, you can say, okay, go to your GP. You know, I mean, obviously people aren't paying for that. Get it tested mm. and we do this properly. So we can try to avoid any complications. Mm. Well, in the UK, it has been mentioned, it was mentioned earlier, Sean, that vitamin D is very important for your immune system. We have some good research to back up there is some research say that you get less infections, respiratory infections with the high levels of vitamin D and interventional stuff. And then very quickly, they were saying the people that are getting really ill seem to be very low. Now, you know, we don't 100% know whether that is association or causation, right? Yeah. But there's now a lot of research to back up the fact that if you're low in it, you are going to have a harder time. And if you give them a mega dose at the beginning and then straight at various points end their recovery, they are far less likely to die, like 60% in a recent study. Yeah. Now, so that we, we it is being mentioned in the media here a lot, and there's been a bit, there was a, a lot of researchers put together a paper and, and it's it kind of a open letter to the, with the world basically saying, come on. And I think one of the issues the government had, I, I um, NICE from the UK did a review, the government body, and they seemed quite at pains to say, this is not a cure for COVID. And I think, I understand what they're saying, but it, it's uh, a more nuanced conversation than that. Yeah. We're not trying to find a cure. We're saying, well, listen, we know that in the middle of winter, 87% of the UK are either deficient or insufficient. That's a real epidemic, right? And we have good evidence to say that also, I also say that people that are dying the most in England are elderly, obese people, and black and Asian groups. They're all 100% deficient or insufficient because... Yep of the skin tone because obese people are lower and when you're elderly you make less so when we know who's dying and we know they're all deficient and it's a, a hormone really vitamin is a hormone we know they should have good levels of it yeah. why would you if you haven't got perfect research why would you leave them deficient for me this is because it's not a drug and this is where i think the regulators and the governments get the knickers in a twist they're treating vitamin d which is a naturally produced hormone yeah. like a drug Drugs are inherently have a danger. If you get it wrong, you can really hurt people. I understand that you need to be careful. Yeah. It isn't a drug. It's overwhelmingly safe. It is dirt cheap. Yeah. And we know the people that are dying are low in it. So without perfect reason, I would just say, just give everyone a good dose. And this goes back to the point we made earlier. Our government did actually say, we'd recommend everyone take 400 units. But that isn't enough if you're obese or elderly or dark skin, you need really probably 4,000 would be a good level for most people to start at. Then we mm. might see something happen. And I don't see any downsides. 
They're not saying, hey, it's a cure. Yeah. We can say you're deficient. We can say we can bring it up. And there's a good body of evidence to say that it's good for infections. And there's some uh, research say that it might help with COVID. We can't be sure, but there's no downside. So let's just go ahead and do it. I have no idea why you wouldn't do that. It just blows my mind. And I feel uncomfortable ethically that they haven't done it. Yeah. There's just such a strong correlation between the groups that you mentioned, who's low and who's also suffering from the COVID. It's such yeah. a strong correlation. And I remember myself, when I was living in England being a student, I I mean, you know, I, I tried to take care of my health. But as a student, I mean, you get a lot wrong. And I definitely mm. didn't look at my vitamin D levels. And I came from South Africa, always feeling on top of the world, you know. And the winters and not getting sun and being inside, I mean, it, it, I can... I, I, with a lot of certainty, I can say that it, it must have been a big reason why I had been almost called a depression where I was feeling really, mm. really low for weeks on yeah. end. And mm. since we've, since I've been busy with this and also my wife, um, you know, I mean, I go through the winters just feeling strong and feeling good. Uh, yeah. And of course, when you get ill, you're going to, you take a little dip, but it's, it's, it's not a mental low that I used to have constantly. Mm. And and in in the Netherlands, the the GPs are. I've had a lot because I, I test a lot of my patients. I get get them tested for vitamin D, um, uh, kind of standard. And every now and then it will leak out to the to the doctor of the patient of mine. What mm. I'm doing, or you know, they'll check with the doctor because they've been at the doctor. Say, well, Jacob, the chiropractor wants them to do this, you know. And then I'll mm. I'll get I'll get a very upset patient back. Where the doctors told them that um, this is absurd, you know, it's, it's crazy. You can never take those doses. And then I'll do the same thing as what you explained earlier. I mean, if you in the sun for an hour, fully exposed, if you would be two hours in the sun, completely naked in the middle of the summer, if your skin is able to handle that, you'll make between twenty mm -hmm. and forty thousand IUs. And uh, and they'll be like, oh, really? It's, okay, is that possible? I'm saying, yeah. Well compared to the 200 or 400 international units that you're being advised from the doctor, when you've had maybe a, a, a 20 or even lower out of 200, a very low level, and then I explained yeah. to them that, you know, that's not going to do the, the trick. It's, you, it's, it's, it doesn't work. So, and then they, they get back on track and they like, they're, they're open for advice and they're like, okay, you know, let's do this. But um, it, it really is, being treated in the Netherlands by the medical profession like a like a drug, like something mm. that's incredibly uh, um, dangerous, and yeah. you know it's it's almost sometimes I have to like rethink am I am I still you know have I got it right uh, mm -hmm. because you've got such an opposing view over there on how to approach this and. Um, uh, I'm just wondering, do you use vitamin K2 with the vitamin D? Uh, what's your opinion on that? Uh, generally, yes. We'll, we'll we, uh, give out, yeah, it's a, a combined formula. So it'll be vitamin D with some K2 in there. Yeah. Um, you don't, you know, it's hard to know that we haven't really got a proper reliable test for K2. Um, uh, you can get K2 from eating, so your dark leafy greens like kale have lots of vitamin K1 in it, and you can convert some K1 into K2. And if you have a good microbiome, lots of good bugs, 
they will produce some uh, K2 for you as well. And if you're eating dairy, if you tolerate dairy, fine. And if the animals are grass-fed, so you get good quality grass-fed butter, they'll have some K2 in it as well. So I don't know that everybody definitely needs it, but the potential downside, in the, it's a longer-term issue, might be that if you're absorbing calcium maximally, the vitamin K, it basically turns uh, the protein in your bones on and it sucks calcium into the bone. So it's very good for bone density in the longer term. So the danger might be you're absorbing lots of calcium by having the vitamin D, but without that, if you're low in vitamin K2 for whatever reason, the calcium won't go into the bones and it can then potentially end up in the arteries. And there's some inverse relationship between osteoporosis and heart disease. So you have to be a little bit careful moving the longer term with that. Yeah. Very good. Great. And um, I'm just wondering, do you want to say something about the uh, Academy for Chiropractic Nutrition? I mean, that's your, yeah. your thing. So it's for uh, practitioners. Yeah. So if you're a chiropractor or an osteopath, physio, uh, then it's, the, it's called the Academy of Chiropractic Nutrition.com. But obviously, it's we have lots of osteopaths on board and physios just because I'm a chiropractor. And that's why I started it for chiropractors. So it's... Um, it's kind of my journey where I did lots of functional medicine and nutrition, but at a full-on end, it's very difficult to take that information and, and put it into a, a neuromechanical chiro situation. It's, not, it's quite hard to integrate it. So I kind of synthesized it down and made it a bit more applicable. And I think the key thing, kind of we talked about vitamin D and diet, is that there is sort of an 80-20 thing. There are certain things that are we would call them keystones okay. or bottlenecks to change. So something that will hold the system together. And vitamin D is a great example. If you're low in vitamin D, really low, like under 25 or something, it doesn't matter what else you do. You will not get better. It is so profound because of the inflammation and the pain, all that other stuff it does, and it's such a mismatch of evolution. You could give them a perfect diet and all sort of things, it will, they just will not get better. So it's a bottleneck to change. So if we can get hold of those bottlenecks, like vitamin D is one, B12 will be another one, yeah. magnesium, and other things, and the diet stuff we talked about, if you can get hold of those, and I put that into a sort of a, 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 um, a phased approach for the, for the practitioners, and did, um, then uh, it, it, you get great results with your chiropractic, and then you get a lot of accessory benefits for the patient. They, you know, they feel a lot better. Um, as well so that's for practitioners um they could just academyofchiropractic.com and there's uh the course um is sort of I, I offer the course up on and off and then there's the newsletter which comes out uh fridays at five with sort of you know nutritional tidbits uh thoughts you know ideas research reviews that kind of stuff i enjoy those are <laughs> <laughs> oh, great and ben as well in his uh non-presence so um yeah, that's great. I think uh, we'll stop here, Simon. It's been great talking to you. I, I think that there's there's a lot of uh, things we do quite similar, and uh, you know, it's always, it's always great to hear someone who, who kind of looks at certain things in the same way to to hear how they how they do things because there's those little differences that you're like, aha, okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Oh no, that's great. And um, so it's been a real pleasure talking to you and having you on the show. And um, thank you. All the best. Thanks for having me.